Hello and welcome to the Vine Life Podcast. I'm Tony Clark, your host, and today my special guest is Kenneth Samples. Now, Ken is a philosopher and a theologian. He also has a passion to help people understand the reasonableness and relevance of Christianity's truth claims. He's also the senior research scholar at Reasons to Believe. He's also the, the author of several books, including Christianity Cross-Examined, Classic Christian Thinkers, and God Among Sages. Now, today we're going to be discussing another book, one of his books that came out about 20 years ago. And the title of the book is Without a Doubt, Answering the 20 Toughest Faith Questions, again, which originally came out a number of years ago. If you want to find out more about Ken um, and what he does, you can go to reasons.org. Again, reasons.org. Ken Samples, welcome to the program. Hello, Tony. It's always good to be with you. Thanks for the invitation. Well, it's an honor again to have you on. Thank, thankfully, you came back on. Uh, so I just want to I want to talk about this book. This book has had an extreme resurgence recently. Um, but let me talk about my impression about uh, I haven't finished the book yet, but I, I've, I've made progress through it. Mm-hmm. Uh, my impression of this book is that you don't necessarily have to have a Ph.D. to understand it. Uh, you don't necessarily have to have many degrees on your wall to really soak up spiritual truth in this book. Uh, Even a nitwit like myself can understand it. So that was one of my my biggest impressions of this book. Um, It can speak to the PhD scholar, but it can also speak to the average Joe. That was my impression reading through so far. Well, that's a great compliment. I, uh, Tony, I strive really for two things. I I want to have books that have real substance, but I want them to be as accessible as possible. And I think probably the reason that book is still in print, uh, again, it came out in 2004, I think because lots of people can read it. So that, that that's probably about the best I could hope for in terms of your uh, your response to the book. So thank you. Absolutely. And um you know, I've certainly tried to dig into books that were well above my pay grade, and uh, this one certainly is that. But at least I can I can begin to digest, and and I just wanted to encourage folks that um, you're 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 listening to this interview on a podcast, or you're watching on a YouTube or Facebook channel. I encourage you to order this book, and uh, you you'll get well you'll get well grounded in in essentials of the Christian faith and how to defend your faith as well. Now, Ken, this has some themes in it, I believe. Uh, thinking through questions. Now, thinking through questions about faith in God, about faith in Jesus Christ, and thinking through objections to the Christian faith. Um, and, 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 and looking at those thinking through segments, um, what I came across with as well is not only it, it's able, I'm able to digest it, but I started thinking that... Um, we in the we in the church today, especially in the West, we want bullet point answers. We don't want to read a lot. We don't want to dig into to great spiritual truths. Um, but this book is not like that. It encourages a person to to dig into uh, deeper issues. Um, so the thinking through questions. Um, what about the first one? Thinking through questions about faith in God. Can you just generally describe that to me? What What did you mean by that? Yeah. You know, there's a lots. There are lots of people today that wonder. You know, my belief in God is it based upon uh, experience alone? Are there good reasons to believe in God? And I think the new atheism, which came out, you know, ten, fifteen years ago, has kind of renewed lots of discussion about God's existence, and. I'm very fond of the idea of what we call in logic, abductive reasoning. It's a little different from deductive or inductive. Abductive reasoning is inference to the best explanation. So you're reasoning in such a way as to try to find the best explanation for a phenomenon. And that's the approach I take in that chapter. I I essentially argue that, you know, when we look at the world in which we live, I think God makes the best sense of the fact that there is a universe out there, that that universe uh, had a beginning, that that universe is fine-tuned. 
but but it also that is God makes the best sense I think of human beings. Uh, you know that we're uh, made in God's image means we're exceptional creatures. I mean, uh, the animals don't do science; they don't do philosophy. But the Bible also, and I'm arguing not just for a generic God, but I'm arguing for the biblical God, that it also makes sense of, of human beings in the sense that we're fallen, that we're broken, uh, that we yearn for something, and morally we strive for these things. So in that chapter, I kind of look at uh, the universe, I look at life and, and the human existence, ethics, I look at things like what philosophers call abstractions, logic, mathematics, universals. And then finally, the person of, of Jesus. I think that belief in God makes sense of these profound realities. And I, I try to introduce that topic and, and, and move us through the chapter that way. Yeah, absolutely. You do a great job of doing that. Um, but uh, I, I just I'm kind of on a rabbit trail here, I guess. Sure. Why are we um, in the church? Uh, Ken, do you think that we don't we don't want to think through things anymore? Uh, what's changed in our society? Maybe our society has influenced the church or, or what's happened that we as Christians, we don't want to think through the deep things anymore? Yeah, though that's a that's a great question. It's an enduring question. I I love a quotation from one historical theologian, Yaroslav Pelikan. He said that the church is always more than a school, but it cannot be less than a school. And uh, Tony, I think that many of our churches. Now I'm going to speak more. You know, I'm an evangelical, um, so I'm going to speak as an evangelical. I think a lot of our evangelical churches are less than schools. Um, don't get me wrong. I think that the church has its hands full with all kinds of things. You know, the church is a place of worship. The church is often a hospital where it's trying to help and encourage and counsel people. Obviously, it's a, a place where we fellowship with one another. But I think our society and to some degree our churches, um, lots of people think that their faith in Christ is is more experiential. Now, now again, I agree. I have had experiences with God. God changed my life. I like to say I have a personal relationship with the Lord. But, you know, the Lord has given us a mind, and um, we're to use that mind. And I, and I think the way I like to convey it, Tony, is... An important part of loving God and worshiping God is loving him with our critical faculties, with our, our reasoning abilities. And I think we live in a culture uh, that is largely an entertainment culture. We, we live in a culture that um, has kind of moved away from, uh, you know, a rational reflection of things. So unfortunately, I think it's kind of invaded our church to some degree and, you know, we, we have lots of people who are leaving the church, uh, lots of young people. They go away to college. They're challenged by, uh, you know, secularism and they give up their faith. Their faith deconstructs. They deconvert. Um, so there, there are a lot of negative results from not being careful and, and reflective and I, I think to some degree, some of the churches are a bit anti-intellectual. But in the past, Tony, it wasn't that way. I mean, think of some of the great Christian thinkers, um, Athanasius, Augustine, uh, Thomas Aquinas. I mean, we have some great Christian thinkers in the past, and we have some remarkable people today. So that's a big part of my ministry, to try to challenge people to use their mind. Now, you know, I'm not the smartest man in the world, but I try to be very faithful in using the gifts that God has given me uh, to study, to try to help people to see that faith and reason are compatible. Well, I, th I think that's what your book that we're talking about primarily today, without a doubt, deals with. And it, it, it encourages the, the reader, I think, to think deeper, to think on a deeper level. And we'll talk about some of the... the um, uh, some of the Christian fathers, maybe that you kind of referenced there in just a moment. Um, one of the chapters that stuck out to me, Ken, 
was chapter two. And I think the title is, How Can I Believe in a God That I Can't See? And I think it's your quote in here that says, many of life's most important realities can't be seen. Could you could you just describe what does that mean? Yeah. Yeah, I have. Uh, I, I've encountered a lot of people who said, look, I, I just can't see God. Where is he? Um, and they kind of convey the idea that, you know, uh, I only believe in things that I can see and I can't see an infinite uh, you know, eternal spiritual being. And my response to my students and what I develop in chapter two is I think most most of the meaningful things in the world we can't see. We can't see the laws of logic, but the laws of logic, the law of non-contradiction, the law of identity, uh, the law of excluded middle. Tony, these are laws that ground all of our reasoning we also can't see numbers. Mathematics are conceptual ideas. Uh, we can't see the the fundamental laws of physics, the law of gravity, etc. So there are, there are many things that we can't see, but nevertheless are profound realities. And and God is like that. God is an invisible eternal, infinite spiritual being, tripersonal, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So what I like to say to people, particularly students, when they ask me that question, I say, well, you believe in a lot of things you can't see. And, uh, you know, so when we talk about, when we talk about having a soul, I can't see my soul, but uh, there are good reasons to believe that human beings are more than just their body. So I've been asked that question a number of times, and I thought this is a this is a good place to to kind of interact with that question. And Ken, speaking of things that you probably couldn't see, uh, this book has had a resurgence recently, correct? And um, I wanted to ask you this question: uh, What does a Facebook post and a Christian pastor from Pakistan have in common? <laughs> Well, I, uh, I know the answer to that. Um, you know, Tony, if you would have told me uh, back in 2004 that my book, without a doubt, would make its way over to Pakistan and India, um, I, wouldn't have, I wouldn't have believed it. Um, and, and, you know, I, I, I want to share this with you. Uh, right before my book came out in 2004, I had a life-threatening illness, and it was really life-threatening. I had a bacterial infection in my lung and six abscessed brain lesions. And the doctor told my wife that the mortality rate was 80%. And I'm not great at mathematics, but I know that's not looking very good. By God's grace and good medicine and lots of prayers, I survived that. And what's interesting, of all the books I've written, this book has had, I think, the most influence. It's become kind of my signature book. And in 2014, it was translated into the language Bahasa, which is the language of Indonesia. Indonesia has the largest Islamic population in the world uh, somewhere between three or 400 million. And then last year, a pastor from Pakistan, now Pakistan is 97% Muslim. There, it, there are Christian churches and they're growing there amazingly. But this pastor contacted me and he said, look, I, I want, he said, our country is poor. Our churches don't have lots of resources. So remarkably, um, without a doubt, was translated into the language of Urdu, U-R-D-U. It is the national language of Pakistan. It's also spoken in parts of India. And he, this pastor, Pastor Abbas, he's done a remarkable job at, at overseeing the process. You know, it had to, we had to get approval from Baker because they hold the rights to the book. We had to get a translator and then uh, raise funds to get it translated. And Pastor Abbas was just, he was right on top of it. And it's been distributed to uh, hundreds of Christian leaders, 
there are even young students studying uh, about the Trinity, the incarnation, the atonement, the resurrection, and they're using my book. And it's just been really exciting. Um, I, I can tell you this, writing is hard for me. But one of the funnest things about writing a book is you never know where it's going to go. And with the Holy Spirit, you know, uh, this book has gone to South India. It's gone to Pakistan. It's gone to Indonesia. And I, I couldn't be more satisfied by that. I'm curious, Ken, how did he hear about the book? How did he hear about you? Was he was he familiar with uh, your ministry reasons to believe or your writings? Or how did that take place? Did he say? Yes. Interestingly enough, uh, he we became Facebook friends on social media. And I put up a copy of the Indonesian translation and he saw it and he thought, boy, I would love to see that for, for our people here in Pakistan. So we started talking and I mean, it, it it probably took about a year before we got all the all the things ready. And uh, I I it was just really impressed. I mean, you know, think about Pakistan. It's a poor country. Uh, it is an oppressive country. Uh, Christians are persecuted. Their churches are are torn down. Uh, they don't have a lot. Uh, of internet. There aren't a lot of books available to them. And, you know, many Christian resources are not available in Urdu. So the fact that this book made it that far, I mean, it, it, it has more to do with Pastor Abbas than it does me. He, he is just an amazingly brave and bold witness for Jesus Christ. I'm curious, has there been enough time that's passed that you're you're maybe getting some feedback from the field over there of other I, Christian pastors that are using this book and the, and the responses they're having to what they're learning? Yes, I've gotten some great uh, photographs that I've put up on my Facebook page and R the RTB uh, social media as well. I've gotten reports. Uh, they're working on um, one individual is working on a study guide for Without a Doubt. And um, uh, again, Pastor Abbas has so many different contacts. And now I've had somebody contact me about the possibility of maybe a translation into Sri Lanka. Uh, Sinhala is the language there. And again, it's, it'll be a lot of work to, to, to cross all the boxes and get it done. But it's just really, really very, very exciting and uh, again, I'll I'll tell you a brief story about Hugh Ross. Hugh Ross wrote a book. I think I don't know if it was Creator in the Cosmos or one of his early books. And uh, a gentleman was suicidal and found one of Hugh's books in a used car. Read it and gave his life to Christ. And it's like, wow, um, you know. Uh, it, it's just it's it's just moving to me that the Lord can use these things. And, you know, uh, I give all glory to the, to the Holy Spirit. I, I, I worked hard on the book. I tried to do the very best work I could, but, uh, the fact that it's influenced a lot of people, uh, you know, I give all that credit to the Lord. And I, I think it really does help to strive to have a book that is substantive, but yet is as accessible as you can. And I, I learned that from C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis says, if you can't, if you can't talk about your ideas with real clarity, then maybe you don't understand them as well as you should. And uh, if, if, you know, and I, I appreciate so much you saying that that's what you found in the book. So uh, yeah, this has been just a lot of fun to see these books. And you know, uh, Tony, it has also shown me that there are lots of people living in the world who are spiritually hungry. They don't have a lot. They don't have a lot of freedom. They don't have access to a lot of things that those of us who live in the West have. And so I've been praying for these individuals. And uh, it just goes to show ideas are very important. And I mean, these Indonesia and Pakistan are just dominantly Islamic, but but there seems to be 
the the Holy Spirit is leading a, a spiritual revival, and I'm I'm so excited about that. Well, if, if someone's listening out there on a podcast or watching this uh, interview, Ken, and they're, they 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 feel motivated, uh, maybe by the Holy Spirit to um, help in the production of these books into these languages, what would you recommend? Well, I one I would ask them to pray uh, about this because again. Uh, it's a big task. You got to make sure that you've got a really good translator. Uh, you know, the publisher owns the rights, so we have to get approval. And I'm very grateful for Baker Books. They they have been very generous. They forego royalties so that you know people in these countries that don't have a lot of money can benefit. But if you would like to support that, I would encourage you to contact Reasons to Believe Reasons.org. Uh, send it to attention Ken samples. We would, we could definitely use support in that area. Absolutely, absolutely, and uh, certainly a worthy call. So a worthy uh, book that that obviously the, the the Lord's doing something in a mighty way through the book that He used you to write the book. So. Uh, we're certainly thankful for that, Ken. Now, uh, you, you mentioned a, a bit back about some church fathers. And when I think of church fathers, Ken, I think of creeds. And I think one of your chapters, I think it's chapter four, is titled uh, Creeds Aren't Creeds a Thing of the Past. Yeah. And you've got a quote, someone's quote in there that says, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. Um, how does that quote tie in with the ancient creeds? Yeah. Well, um, one of the things I really try to do in my books, and this was motivated uh, when I wrote Without a Doubt, was I not only want to defend the faith, I want to explain the faith. I want to tell people this, this is what Christianity really is. And creeds uh, have been a very critical part of historic Christianity. I mean, again, today we live at a time where a lot of people don't come from creedal traditions. They don't recite the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed or the Athanasian Creed. Uh, you know, the liturgical churches do, Catholic, Orthodox, Anglican, Lutheran. Uh, but the interesting thing is, Tony, creeds are in the Bible. I mean, in the Old Testament, one of the most important creeds is Deuteronomy 6.4, our Jewish friends call it the Shema, uh, which is the word for hear with your ear. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's that creedal statement about the importance of monotheism. There's no God but uh, but Yahweh. And there are creeds in the New Testament. Uh, maybe the earliest Christian creed is just the statement, Jesus is Lord. If Jesus is Lord, and the Greek word, uh, again, uh, their kurios would be, uh, he's Yahweh. So, uh, and you, you, you probably have creedal statements in 1 Corinthians 15, where it talks about uh, Jesus died, he was buried, he arose, he appeared. That's a creedal statement. There, throughout Scripture, and, and what's interesting, Tony, is a lot of these creedal statements come from the earliest point of Christianity. So they're written by uh, Paul and Peter, the apostles, and they weave them into the New Testament. And so in that chapter, I try to talk about how important these creeds have been. I, you know, I come, I grew up uh, somewhat of a nominal Catholic. Um, I became an evangelical Protestant when I was in college. I've been part of the Lutheran and Reformed and Anglican traditions. I really think that creeds play a very important role. They they help us to memorize our basic beliefs. They they help us to understand how Scripture can be uh, summarized and explained. And so I wanted to I wanted my evangelical, maybe non-creedal, non-liturgical friends to recognize that some of these practices of the past are really, really important. I mean, I catechized my children, and the way we did that was uh, memorizing creeds and having questions and, and answering them from a biblical point of view. So 
that to me is a very important chapter. And I, you know, yesterday, Sunday, we recited the Nicene Creed, and it's just, it's just packed full with Christian doctrine and Christian truth. Well, Ken, I'm, I'm kind of a, 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 I guess, a byproduct of modern evangelicalism. And uh, so I, it puts, I'm putting someone else in my situation that's listening, maybe, and they're wanting to know how to find more out about uh, not only the church fathers, but but creeds, Christian creeds. How would you direct them? Have in some of your writings in the past or to other books? How, yeah. how would they find out more? Yes. Well, um, I uh, not only have a chapter on uh, creeds here in Without a Doubt, but in my worldview book, A World of Difference, I have an entire chapter devoted to the creeds and uh, talk about the apostles. I take the Apostles' Creed line by line, uh, explain it, show its connections to Scripture, the value of it. And then when it comes to the Church Fathers, a few years ago, I wrote a book entitled Classic Christian Thinkers, where I have chapters on Irenaeus, Athanasius, Augustine, Anselm, Aquinas, Luther, Calvin, Pascal, and the final chapter is on C.S. Lewis. So I kind of introduce uh, my evangelical friends to nine of these great thinkers all the way back from the second century uh, to Lewis, who lived in the 20th century. Well, it's definitely worth something, uh, something worth checking out on my behalf. And I'm sure a lot of folks are listening. They want to do the same thing as well. Um, Ken, you've got uh, one of the other chapters that really stuck out to me was chapter eight, I think. And the title is, is Jesus a man, myth, madman, menace, mystic, Martian or Messiah? There's a lot of M's there, but you want to dig into this chapter a little yeah. bit. Um, who did Jesus consider himself to be? And, and uh, just, uh, just talk about that chapter some, please. Yes, that's really kind of one of my favorite chapters. Um, I'm sure lots of your listeners have probably heard what they call the trilemma. Is Jesus Lord, liar, or lunatic? Uh, Josh McDowell, in some of his early books, I read the, the trilemma, and C.S. Lewis spoke that way. And what I do in the chapter, and it took me a long time to come up with all those M words, but... Essentially, I'm asking the question, who is Jesus Christ? And I am uh, convinced that Jesus saw himself as being God in human flesh. He was a single person, but had a divine and human nature. We call this the incarnation, God coming in the flesh. And, you know, lots of people have questions about him and objections. And so when I asked the question, you know, was he was he merely a man or was he a menace? That is, was he claiming to be God when he wasn't? Or was he a madman in the sense that, I mean, Jews don't go around actually talking about themselves being God. So was was, Jew, was Jesus mentally ill? But then I also raised some other possible objections. So man, myth, man, man, menace. Uh, you know, could there be other objections? Um, could he merely be a myth? Or, you know, UFOs are very popular. Could he have been a Martian? And what I do in the in the chapter is essentially argue that you know, posit whatever position you like or you think is reasonable about Jesus, but using that abductive reasoning, what is the best explanation? And when I look at the Gospels, uh, C.S. Lewis said that he had studied myth his entire life. He read the Gospels and he said, they're not mythical. Uh, they're like modern biographies. They they they're written as historical statements. And so what, I, what I'm attempting to do is to say, look, what is your belief about Jesus? And then let's put it into that logical framework and let's test it and let's see which, uh, which position seems to be the most reasonable. Now, some people have said, for example, Tony, that the Lord Liar Lunatic, that it, it is... Uh, it, it lacks some other possible alternatives. And 
Of course, I bring in the question of myth. I bring in other ideas. But I think that that's a very powerful uh, framework for for reasoning about Jesus Christ. And um, I think it's held up very, very well. And if I've missed any alternative, I would invite my skeptical friends or people from other religions to pose it. And I'll be glad to to kind of reason through it. But I, that's one of the chapters that I I have uh, really enjoyed, and uh, I because I find it very uh, powerful and and very encouraging. And, and Ken, that brings up a question to me um, with with the skeptics that, skeptics that you're talking about the I guess the new atheists I guess they're kind of dying off now. But um, what's the most common? Uh, explanation for this Jesus character that that you've seen from the skeptics today? Yeah, I, I, I think probably there are a couple views that are popular. One, obviously, that maybe we're getting um, we're getting a mythical perspective. Maybe, yeah, Jesus probably existed, but maybe the apostles invented certain things about him or the church. Maybe he was just purely a human being. But over several centuries, the Gentiles deified him and he became a god. That position has never gone away. A, a, a fairly newer position, I don't think it's well supported, but some people argue the Christ myth, that is that he never existed at all. And of course, one of the powerful reasons for rejecting it is uh the Gospels are well attested, and if and if you don't believe Jesus existed, you you couldn't believe that Aristotle or Plato or Caesar Augustus existed. So I think most skeptical people think that they can't reasonably take the Gospels at face value, and I have a chapter on that topic as well. Can I trust the New Testament Gospels to give me reliable historical facts? Ken, if you don't mind, let's go on that theme. Can we trust the New Testament accounts? Can we trust these New Testament books on the yeah. reliability of who Jesus claimed to be? How can we do that? Yeah, well, there are many things that support the idea that the Gospels are history, that they are uh, they're, they're manuscripts that can be relied upon. Uh you know, when we look to history, we let's go back to the ancient world. Uh, we can talk about Greek and Roman history. There are significant people uh, in in the Greek civilization: Socrates, Plato, Aristotle. In the Roman tradition, Caesar Augustus, uh, Cicero. All of these great uh, uh, ancient thinkers and writers. Um, what's interesting, Tony, is we have very few, uh, in terms of number, manuscripts supporting uh, some of the great thinkers of Greece and Rome. But when it comes to the New Testament, there's just an overwhelming uh, number of manuscripts uh, in the ancient Greek, in, in Latin, in many different languages. So one reason for believing in the reliability of the New Testament or the Gospels in particular is the number of textual manuscripts we have. Another good reason for believing that the Gospels can be trusted is the period of time between when they were written and when they emerged as documents is very, very short. Uh, I'll give you a couple of examples. Uh, if Jesus died in 30 or 33 AD, uh, we've got papyra manuscripts that uh, date within 100 years of that. We've got uh, larger manuscripts uh, from the 2nd, 3rd, 4th, 5th, 6th centuries. Now, you might be thinking at that point, well, that's still a long time away, but if we talk about other religions like Buddhism, uh, you know, when it comes to when the Buddha lived, they don't know what century he lived in. And then when it comes to the documents that write about the Buddha, they come 400 or 500 years. So the Gospels uh, emerge pretty early. 
And uh, Christians were bookish people. They were textual people. They, they saw the value of recognizing the apostles aren't going to live forever. We need, we need a manuscript, you know, that convey these ideas. So there are good historical and textual reasons to believe that the Bible can be believed, that uh, it was written early, and that it reflects the views of eyewitnesses or closely associated eyewitnesses. And let me just mention a couple things about the Gospels. Uh, Matthew was, uh, church tradition says that the Gospels came from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew was one of the original apostles. Mark was not, but Mark has a very close association with Peter. Mark was kind of his Emmanuelus. Uh, Mark took the, the talking points, if you will, from Peter, the great preacher of the early church. And so that manuscript comes from uh, Peter. And Luke was not one of the original apostles, but Luke was a strong, close associate with Paul. And so that's the authority there. And then John would have been one of the apostles. So the Gospels come from uh, important eyewitness thinkers or people who were closely associated with, with the inner circle of Jesus's apostles. Wow. Wow. And yeah, so, you know, what are the... One of the mis one of the misconceptions I, I hear, or one of the arguments that I hear, is um, maybe it's a straw man. I'm not sure, but I, I, I'm just playing devil's advocate here. I will hear that uh, because of all of these crazy things, these descriptive events take place in the Old and the New Testament uh, that that are hard to explain. Therefore, I can't believe that Jesus is who he claimed to be. Uh, but for me as a Christian, because I believe that Jesus is who he claimed to be, all of these crazy events that are hard to understand, for example, in the Old Testament, I I'm okay with them. Because if Jesus is who he claims to be, there is an answer there. Um, but it, it makes sense to me to, to look first to Christ and his resurrection. I believe in that. So therefore, I can investigate these harder to understand passages. Um Help me make sense of that. If, yeah, maybe that's yeah. a convoluted question. I, I think your reasoning there is right on target, Tony. I, I think the reality is that, um, you know, the evidence we have for the resurrection of Jesus is is very powerful. Um, things like the empty tomb, the appearance of the apostles. Uh, I mean, if the tomb was if we could have discovered the body, Christianity is dead. It's DOA, dead on arrival. And yet there's not just the evidence that the tomb was empty. The apostles claim to have seen Jesus, multiple witnesses. So you need an explanation for the empty tomb. You also need an explanation for the appearances of Jesus. Uh, you need an explanation for why did Christianity emerge at all? Why did Christians start worshiping on Sundays? Sunday has no theological or biblical connection, except for the fact that was the first day of the week when the Lord rose from the dead. Um, lots of lots of reasons for believing that there was a historical Christian church that emerged. And yeah, there, I, I agree with you. There are challenges. Um, how do you account for things like miracles? But if, you know, you look at the life of Jesus, uh, I remember reading Houston Smith, one of the great scholars of the world's religions, and he said that, um, he said about Jesus, he said, it appears that not only did Jesus preach the Sermon on the Mount, but he lived it. I mean, imagine Imagine somebody living the way Jesus actually preached, where you would love people and and have a heart of forgiveness and loving your neighbor. Um, when I think of the extraordinary teaching um, uh, in a book I'm working on now, I talk about Jesus as as a logician, as a sage. I mean, Jesus doesn't have the formal training that most rabbis would have had. And yet from 12 years on, he's debating 
the, the greatest minds that Israel had. So who is this person where... Uh, the entire Western world has been turned upside down. I mean, I mean, we, our calendar begins with the person of Jesus Christ, B.C., before Christ, A.D., annual domini, in the year of our Lord. I think when you open up the pages of Scripture, and this is what C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien said, they said, we've studied myth our whole life. This is not myth. This is someone we can who has who has no equal. And I wrote a book a number of years ago, God Among Sages, where I compare Jesus with four of the great religious leader. I compare him with Krishna, with Buddha, with Confucius and Muhammad. And Tony, I can tell you that not only does not only do you and I not compare well with Jesus in terms of our morality, in terms of our integrity, in terms of our our intellectual claims, but even the great thinkers of the world don't compare well with Jesus. So I like your reasoning. Yeah, there are things in the Old Testament that I think, wow, that's pretty extraordinary. But if Jesus has risen from the dead and if God does exist, those miracles are possible. And let, Ken, let's continue that theme, because in chapter 10, you talk about that. Did Jesus actually raise or did Jesus Christ actually rise from the dead? And there's a quote in there that says, Christianity does not hold the resurrection to be one among many tenets of belief. Without faith in the resurrection, there would be no Christianity at all. So yeah. it seems like this resurrection of, of Jesus is really the cornerstone of everything that we believe. Everything kind of flows from that. You want to dig into that chapter a little bit? Yeah. You know, I, I, it is fascinating to me that the resurrection is not just a very critical doctrine. I mean, salvation comes from believing in the life, death, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. His life is filled with miracles. His life is filled with, with these extraordinary teaching. Then his death on the cross is an atonement like unto the sacrifices of the Old Testament, but then we're also saved by believing in his resurrection. But what I think is interesting there is the resurrection is not just part of our doctrinal beliefs. It's the central evidence for why we are Christians. A pelican, I mentioned him earlier, he once said that, um, he, he said, if Christ is risen, nothing else matters. And if Christ is not, Nothing else matters. Now, now that's an aphorism. It's he, he kind of put it in somewhat of an enigmatic fashion, but this is what I think he he meant by it, Tony. That if Christ is risen from the dead, that's a message every single person needs to hear. Because there's one thing we all know: when you get a little older, you get some gray hair, you've had gone around the sun a few times, you realize that you're going to die, and all of us have to face that reality. But if Jesus defeated death, if there's good reasons to believe that he rose from the dead, that's a game changer. I mean, that that turns the, the uh, your basic worldview upside down. On the other hand, if Jesus is not risen from the dead, I think what Pelican meant was maybe we have no hope at all. You know, uh, will die, will be extinct. Uh, physicists say in a few billion years, the earth will, you know, be vaporized and ultimately will have the heat debt. So Christianity at its core is about the person of Jesus. It is about that miracle resurrection. And N.T. Wright, a leading New Testament scholar, has said that there really is no historical explanation for Christianity except for the resurrection, that there's no reason for the emergence of this church to pop into existence. And so what I do in that chapter is I try to look at evidence. I've uh, up updated some of the evidence in my la latest book, uh, Christianity Cross-Examined. I look at 20 different pieces of evidence. But, but again, if we look at some of those um, why was the tomb empty? Uh, why weren't they able to discover the body of Jesus? Even skeptical scholars, higher critical scholars, the Jesus Seminar, 
they believe that the apostles really believe they were seeing Jesus risen from the dead. They don't necessarily believe it, but they don't think the apostles were lying or deceiving. Then what transformed these people? I mean, Peter, James, and John, they're kind of cowardly. You know, after Jesus is crucified, they're afraid. And then something changes them. What changed uh, Peter and uh, James and John into these bold witnesses and evangelists? What about Paul, Saul of Tarsus? He's he's kind of a Taliban. I mean, he he accepts the idea. He comes along and sees these Christians worshiping Jesus, and he says, "I'm a rabbi. We got to stop this. This this is you know." Uh, this is idolatry. And he agrees that they can be persecuted, they could be executed. And then Paul says he has an encounter with Jesus, and he becomes first the, the greatest opponent of the church to becoming the greatest advocate of the church. What changed his life? How did that happen? And there are many other things. Why Sunday? Why why does Christianity emerge the way it does? I think the answer is because something genuinely happened. And I think the best explanation of the data is that Jesus is risen from the dead. And Tony, I can tell you, I've studied um, most of the world's religious leaders and most of the leading philosophers. One thing I, I know about all of them is they're all dead and they've stayed dead. Jesus, on the other hand, uh, was risen from the grave. And uh, uh, that's a chapter and that's an argument that's right at the heart. So the resurrection is not only one of our most important beliefs, but it's also one of our most important evidences for our belief. Well, and, and because of that resurrection, I think you have a chapter, I think it's chapter 12, don't all religions lead to God? So if, if yeah. Christ was really raised from the dead, it kind of nullifies all of those other religions or paths to God. And I think in this chapter, chapter 12, you, you discuss pluralism and um, many roads, I guess, that, that we say can lead to God. You want to discuss that, Ken? You want to tell us what pluralism means, first of all, and why we should reject it? Yeah, pluralism is the idea that that all religions lead to God. Uh, the the ancient Romans had the building there in Rome called the Pantheon. It was dedicated to all the gods. Well, there are some fundamental difficulties with the idea that all the religions lead to God. Uh, number one is that they disagree. I mean, some religions, you know, let's just take Hinduism. You can be a Hindu and believe the universe is God. You can be a Hindu and believe there are 330 million gods. Or you can be a Hindu and believe in one God. You can be a Buddhist and not believe in God at all. And then, and then Jews and Muslims, they don't think Jesus is God. Uh, Christians do. So one of the reasons why all religions can't be true is that they teach fundamentally things. It's not like the different denominations where Methodists and Lutherans and Episcopalians, you know, teach some things that are different from the Catholics. Tony, the world's religions have fundamental differences. A second reason why pluralism can't be true is you can't reduce them all the way down to a single common theme. Some people would like to say, well, look, maybe a way of doing that is ethics. Don't, don't all the religions kind of have a, a golden rule, you know, treat your neighbor the way you want to be treated. But the problem there is there, there is no, there is no ultimate bottom line. Uh, I mean, the idea that, that we should love our neighbor and humans have value comes from the theological belief that God created us in his image. So you can't separate ethics from theological truth. And then the, the, I think the clincher here as to why pluralism can't be true, Tony, is that they all contradict each other and contradictory statements cannot all be true. I mean, I mean, even if you just take the three major monotheistic religions in the Abrahamic religions, you take Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, 
Yeah, it's true. All religions, all three of those religions believe in monotheism. But when it comes to Jesus, everything is then in a clash where Christians say Jesus is God incarnate. He is God in human flesh. But our Jewish and Muslim friends say Jesus is not God incarnate. So logically, pluralism really comes apart. And so, you know, we don't like the idea of being intolerant or we don't like the idea of exclusivism. But Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man can come to the Father but by me. Peter says, there is salvation in no one else. Uh, you know, no one can come except uh, through Jesus Christ. So I argue that believing that there is one way to God avoids all of those tensions and contradictions. And and we shouldn't be surprised, Tony, that Hindus and, and Buddhists and uh, Muslims and Jews and Zoroastrians and Jainists, uh, Taoists, we shouldn't be surprised that they all kind of have the second five of the Ten Commandments because God made all people in his image and all people have general revelation and all are familiar with the common grace of God. So there's a reason why people recognize that. And from a biblical point of view, it's because the Lord made all people. Special revelation, however, comes in Christ. It comes in the in the biblical statement. So that's such an important question today, because if you think Christianity is exclusively true, you know, you're you're called uh, all kinds of bad names. You know, you're, you're said that, uh, you know, you're terribly intolerant. Well, I, I think it is a, a necessary intolerance. Well, and just listening to what you're saying there and reading through the book, it seems to all come back to who is this person of Jesus, the exclusivity of of Jesus Christ. And, and Ken, you mentioned, I think, special revelation, but there's also a thing called general revelation as well. And uh, it, it begs the question, and there's another chapter in this book that talks about Aren't Christianity and science enemies? And I, I think you're, I think that you're uniquely qualified to answer this question because you work at Reasons to Believe. Um, but talk about that a little bit, if you would, because we tend to think that if you've got a scientific degree, then somehow Christianity, this person of Jesus, is beneath you. But you want to answer that question? Are Christianity and science enemies, or are they compatible? Yeah, th this is such an important question. And as you mentioned, this is right at the core of uh, our mission at Reasons to Believe. We hope to help people to find God in science. I would say that Christianity and science are, are not enemies. They're, they're allies. Um, the natural sciences, uh, they began in Christian Europe in the 1600s. There was this uh, scientific revolution and the vast majority of the founding fathers of science were themselves Christian. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about uh, Pascal and uh, Galileo and, and uh, numerous other uh, Christian thinkers. I would also say uh, in that context, Tony, that the reason why Christianity was the worldview that produced science uh, now, the Chinese, they attempted to kind of get a scientific revolution off the ground, but it it, it petered out. Also, the Romans, the Greeks, uh, even the Muslims attempted it, but it, it, it never got off the ground. I think largely because they had beliefs that were incompatible with it. So Christianity says, look, their God is a a designer. He created the world with logic and, and natural laws. He made us human beings in his image and gave us the capacity to reason and to discover. We can trust our cognitive faculties. We have reliable sense organs so we can do science. And doing science brings glory to God. Um, and, and I think the Christian worldview is pretty consistent with what we see in the, in the modern world. Uh, Tony, in the beginning of the 20th century, a lot of scientists thought we'll discover that the universe is eternal 
but but it's not. We what we've discovered is the universe had an origin. It seems to have had a beginning. Uh, Christianity would also predict that the universe would be fine tuned for God. We've discovered that that the uh, fundamental laws, uh, uh, the prerequisites, uh, are fine tuned to a fu- to allow for life. Um, I think there are many areas in which it illustrates. Uh, I'll, I'll mention human beings. Many scientists, and certainly some of them are not Christian, have recognized that human beings are exceptional, that we're not just different from the animals in degree, we're different in kind. Well, that's, I think, what the Bible teaches, that that humans were made from the dust of the ground, the animals were made for the dust of the ground, but humans received the breath of life, and they're capable of being... Uh, Humans can create the natural sciences. Human beings can engage in philosophy. We can we can have NASA and put a man on the moon. Um, so humans seem to be able to do things that are extraordinary. So I think there's many good reasons to think that Christianity and science, for the most part, have had a allied relationship. Now, yeah, are there some challenges? Questions like evolution. Uh, other questions that are that are raised, but for the most part, Christianity and science have had a very close relationship. And what's your heart's desire um, with this book now, or maybe when you were writing the book? What did you? What was the primary goal that you wanted folks to come away with uh, when they read this book? Do you have a heart's desire well, in that? Well, I. It, Back in the 1980s and early 90s, I worked at the Christian Research Institute. I worked with Walter Martin, who was an extraordinary Christian apologist. He was kind of the original Bible answer man. Uh, After leaving CRI, I began teaching courses in philosophy and logic, ethics, and world religions at a couple contemporary colleges here in Southern California. And Tony, in those years, I had lots of students in class, and they would ask these kind of questions like, why can't all religions lead to God? Um, How come I can't see a God that I can't, you know, how can I believe in a God I can't see? Uh, How can God be three in one? And I thought to myself, I really want to write a book that would explain why Christians believe what they did. And... um, I then went to Reasons to Believe, and I began writing articles in these particular areas, and I had the opportunity to develop those articles into chapters, and Baker Books said, hey, we'd like to have that. So in many ways, this book, without a doubt, the subtitle is Answering the 20 Toughest Faith Questions. It has been my my signature book. It has been, I think, my most influential book. And I think in many ways, because it's kind of my uh, path, it's my experience. I uh, I was raised in a Catholic family, um, but I, we kind of lost our way to some degree. And I faced lots of challenges and struggles. So in many ways, these are questions I had to weigh and I had to search for answers and uh I'm thrilled that so many people have found it meaningful. And again, I can only be humbled that it had been that it's been translated into multiple languages. And so um, I'm very grateful for that book and I'm grateful for for the people that it's touched and grateful for you that you would invite me on your fine program and we could we could talk about it. Well, I'm thrilled that you came on again. Uh, Ken, uh, is there anything you want to add uh, to the discussion about this book? I, I would love to keep you on for hours, but I, I know your time is limited. Well, I I, I would just say that I, I think some strengths of the book, um, again, this is not, uh, these are not softball questions. These are real uh, difficult questions, but I tried to write about them with the most clarity I could bring so you don't have to have a PhD. You don't have to have lots of letters behind your name. I think, I think uh, the the layman can pick this book up and make some good headway through it. Um, I think another 
a positive element as the author is I would say that I think it does two things. It tries to explain the faith and then defend the faith. And Tony, I remember Tim Keller, uh, who he was himself not only a well-known pastor, but quite an apologist in his own right. Keller said that people have to want to believe in Christianity before they can come to accept Christianity. Mm. So I also tried to talk about the good things that Christianity has done. And uh, uh, again, uh, it's been in print for 20 years, and I'm I'm very grateful for that. Most books don't stay in print very long. And uh, so I'm, I'm grateful for that. And it's been fun talking with you about these questions. It kind of takes me back to my my early college years. And uh, so again, uh, I appreciate the invitation. And the last thing I want to say is I want to invite people to follow your program. You have lots of great topics. You have people come on and uh, I really have enjoyed kind of following, uh, you know, your ministry. So I, I hope people will, will support your program. Well, thank you for that, Ken. That's very kind words. And again, this is this is a hobby of mine, and God has blessed, uh, you know, blessed me tremendously for folks like yourself to come on. And uh, so I am blessed all around. Now, Ken, some of the other projects that you're working on, uh, you want to talk about those a little bit? What, what do you got coming up? What's on your schedule? What are you writing? Can you tell us about it? Yeah, I'm very excited about a, a new book that will probably come out either in the summer or in the fall of this year. It is entitled Clear Thinking in a Messy World. The subtitle is A Christian Guide uh, to Logic, Reason, and Cognitive Biases. So this is kind of a, a manual on, on logic, on critical thinking, uh, we talk about informal logical fallacies like straw man and red herring and ad hominem. But my colleague uh, uh, is Mark Perez, and he is a philosopher. He is an administrator, has a long background in law enforcement, and he has written sections on cognitive biases like confirmation bias that humans have biases that cloud our thinking. And so we have to be very careful. So I'm very excited about that because I taught logic for 30 years and I always wanted to have a book I could give to my students. And I think while this book has challenging parts, I really think it's very readable. So I'm hoping it'll be a big help. And boy, you look around at the world in which we have today and you look at things like race, gender and class and Boy, we need to be very careful and uh, discerning in the way we reason. And Ken, uh, just uh, to kind of wrap things up, I wanted to leave it with you. Uh, and you mentioned that just now. We live in a society that calls evil good and good evil. We exchange darkness for light and vice versa in our society. And it seems like it's getting darker and darker. So what encouragement would you have for the church in these trying times. Yeah. Well, I agree with that. I I think we are living in a post-Christian culture, uh, what some have called a post-truth culture. Uh, I, maybe the encouraging words is there have been other times in church history where the church has faced very difficult times. Even in the time of St. Augustine, the Roman Empire was falling apart. A civilization seemed like it was coming apart. Uh, my encouraging word is that the Lord is the the, the God of history, um, and he is in control. We believe that he is sovereign. I think Christians do need to hanker, hunker down. I think we do need to rededicate ourselves uh, to building the best families we can build, to build the best churches we can, to be people of, of prayer, to be people of moral integrity, and to trust in the in the Lord, um, you know, we do live in some challenging times, but Christianity and the Bible have faced other times and have come out of that. So uh, now is the time to be very serious. Uh, you know, you can't be a Christian and uh, be weak. Uh, Christianity demands everything from us. So we need to get into the battle 
and realize we're living in a spiritual war and be on our knees, be in the word and uh, and putting all of our our confidence and our great hope, the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, Ken, that's an, a great, great and encouraging word. And I thank you for that, um, Ken. I, I can't thank you enough for coming on the program and talking about this book without a doubt, answering the 20 toughest faith questions. And if you want to find more information about Ken or, or this book, you can certainly go to reasons.org. Again, reasons.org. Ken, thank you so much for coming on. My pleasure, Tony. Thanks. Ha- thanks for having me. Absolutely. And I will ask you to hang on 30 seconds post interview, but until next time.